Uh, let's 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 kick things off. So welcome everyone to another Wednesday night talk. Lots of familiar faces, uh, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is David. This accent is English, and as I was just saying earlier, I go to a Byzantine Rite Catholic parish um, here in San Diego called Holy Angels. Hi. Uh, but once a uh, once once a month, I come here and visit you lovely people at St. Bridget's. I help lead a Bible study, and I give a talk on some aspect of Catholicism. And these sessions are really driven by you. So if there's something in particular that you would like addressed, just speak to me afterwards, and we can, we can put it on the list of uh, things to talk about one month. And I mean, this tonight's, tonight's talk is called Hidden Treasure, How the Old Testament is Unveiled in the New. And this talk really grew out of last month's talk, where I spoke about my relationship with Mary um, and how I overcame some of my issues with her. And I, I explained how I came to realize that she is the new Eve, that she is the new Ark of the Covenant, she's the new Queen Mother in the Kingdom, and how this really helped me. But you don't need to have gone to that previous talk to get this one. But if you would like to listen to it, it is on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. I always make sure in every talk I do, I shamelessly plug my blog at least once. And finally, before we get started, you don't have to wait until the end of the session to ask questions. If you have a question, please just interrupt me. Um, I much prefer talks when there's a little bit of back and forth. But before we go any further, we should pray. And I'm going to pray a prayer that... It was written in the very early 3rd century. It was written by a Christian writer, a very prolific Christian writer, this guy named Origen, Origen of Alexandria. And he really exemplifies the approach to reading the Old Testament, which we're going to look at tonight. So it just seemed really appropriate that we'd begin with some of his words. So if you'd please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, inspire me to read your scriptures and to meditate upon them day and night. I beg you to give me real understanding of what I need, that I, in turn, may put its precepts into practice. Yet I know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So I ask that the words of scripture may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into my heart. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so I don't think it's controversial to say that most people have some struggles with the Old Testament. I mean, out of the two parts of the Bible, you know, it's certainly the longer part. And it describes a culture and a time further removed from our own. And as a result, it's kind of harder to understand. So a lot of people gravitate towards the New Testament, for one reason, it's a good bit shorter. Um, and it's easy to understand, but it's also just got all the good bits of the Bible. You know, it's all about grace and forgiveness. It's about the climax of salvation history. And more than anything else, it has Jesus, and everybody likes Jesus. So a preference for the New Testament isn't exactly surprising. But there's an extreme version of this that we call Marcionism. Now, one of my favorite topics is church history. So pretty much whatever talk I'm giving, we'll always end up talking about what happened in the first few centuries of Christianity, pretty much regardless. And in the second century, there was this heretic known as Marcion. And
And he had a lot of issues, but the one we care about tonight is his attitude towards scripture and specifically the Old Testament. Because Marcion didn't like the Old Testament. So much so, he rejected it entirely. Marcion's Bible did not contain the Old Testament. He also had a slightly different New Testament. Because what Marcion was doing was he was trying to remove the, the, the uh, roots of Judaism, which he found in Christianity. So he chose the least Jewish gospel, which was the Gospel of Luke, and he then edited it a little further to get rid of all of the other references to things of the Old Testament. And he did the same with 10 of Paul's epistles. So Marcion's Bible was the Gospel of Luke, 10 letters of St. Paul, and all of which had been edited. Can anyone think, what's the real problem with doing that? Like I said, I like interaction, so I'm really I'm asking the question. What is the problem with trying to remove Judaism from Christianity? Yeah. I mean, the New Testament might contain the best bits. It might contain the climax of salvation history. But in order to have a New Testament, you need to have an Old Testament. Christianity grew out of Judaism. Has everyone seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Yes. Who hasn't? Okay, you guys need to reconsider your life choices. Because <laughs> they're amazing. But for the rest of you, imagine if you had never read the books... You had never, never watched any of the movies. But you then decided to walk in and watch Return of the King, the final installment. Now, Peter Jackson is a good movie maker, and Tolkien wrote a wonderful book that has its own story arcs. But you would lose so much if you skip the first two-thirds of the story. Or perhaps a better example is, imagine if you went to the cinema, and you then went from theatre to theatre, just watching the last 10 minutes of every movie. Now, you might have quite a good time. You might see some amazing final action sequences. You might hear an inspiring speech. You know, the hero and the heroine might look into each other's eyes. Or the sun sets, the music swells. But so much of it is going to be lost on you because you don't know the context. You don't know how did this story begin? What, what issues were there? What, what are the things that they had to struggle and overcome? And this was the problem that Marcion had. If you try and remove the Old Testament from the New Testament, you miss the overarching narrative of salvation history. Actually, that might be a good talk for a future month. Try and do the story of salvation history in 45 minutes. I think I can do it. So we don't want to be like Marcion. We're Catholics, so we want to read the Bible in the way the Catholic Church reads the Bible. When we open sacred scripture, we want to read it from the heart of the church and with the mind of the church. And so whenever anybody asks me about the Catholic approach to scripture, typically when I'm speaking to Protestants, they want to know what our view of it is, I always point them at one document. It's from the Second Vatican Council. It's the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. It's pretty short, very readable, and it really contains a a wonderful summary of how the Catholic Church views divine revelation in general and sacred scripture in particular. And this is what it has to say about the Old Testament. The Old Testament books contain some things which are incomplete and temporary. Nevertheless, they show us true divine teaching. So the Catholic Church recognizes that there are some things in the Old Testament which are temporary. And there are many things in the Old Testament which are incomplete. 
But we'd expect that, wouldn't we? Because the story's not over. And it goes on to say that in the Old Testament books, there is sound wisdom about human life, a wonderful treasury of prayers. And in them, in these books, the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. The mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. And that's really what we're going to unpack tonight. In what way is the mystery of our salvation present in the Old Testament? But before we get into the mechanics of how all of this works, I just want to look at an example so we can see all of this in action. And I've chosen an example which hopefully most of you should be familiar with. It's the sacrifice of Abraham, or the sacrifice of Isaac, as it's sometimes called. But just in case you're a little fuzzy on the details, let me just briefly recount the story. In Genesis, we hear about this man called Abraham. God calls him from his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, come out, I'm going to take you to another place. And he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to be the father of many nations. And God changes his name from Abraham to Abraham, and that's basically what it means. There was a problem, though. Abraham was old, and his wife was old. Yet God was saying he was going to make a great nation out of them. But then something miraculous happened. They conceived and they had a child, and they called Isaac. But then in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and says something very hard. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only begotten son, your son whom you love. If you read the text, it really does hammer home what a big thing God is asking of him. It wasn't just like, you know, I know you don't like the kid. so No, this is his only begotten son whom he loves. He says, I want you to take your son and I want you to go to the the, uh, Mount Moriah and there I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, Abraham knew the promises that God had made. God had told him that he was going to be a father of many nations. So how exactly that was going to happen, if God was going to have have him kill his son, who knows? But Abraham was, he was faithful and he, he trusted God. And so Abraham and his son Isaac, they went to the mountain and they gathered up some firewood and Abraham put it on Isaac's back. A lot of people get the impression that Isaac's this little five-year-old at this point. No, he's much older. He's a, he's a strapping teenager at this point. So Abraham loads up the wood on his back and the two of them then walk up the mountain. And it's at this point that Isaac notices something. He says, hey, Dad, notice you've got a very sharp knife there. And uh, I'm carrying all of this wood. Yeah, I'm carrying it. He's a teenager, so he had to be a little petulant. And I see you brought the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham replies very prophetically. He says, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. Then they come to the mountaintop, and Scripture doesn't tell us about that exchange, but it's at this point that Isaac is let into the story as to what's going to happen here. And as I said, you know, he's, he's a young man at this point, and Abraham is extremely old. So if Isaac had wanted to get away or overpower him, he certainly could have. But he allows himself to be bound and placed upon the altar. He trusts his father, and he trusts God. And Abraham is just about to bring down the knife when an angel stops him. And then Abraham looks up and he sees in the corner a a, a ram with its head, its horns, caught in a thicket. He then sacrifices the ram instead. And at the end, God says to Abraham, because you held nothing back, 
because you trusted me. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have many descendants. And through your descendants, through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. So what I've just done there is I have told you the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. I have given you the literal sense of that story. And the literal sense is the meaning of the words. But I want to draw a distinction here, because in scripture studies we make a distinction between the literal sense and the literalistic sense. The literal sense is the intent of the author. It's the meaning of the words once we rightly understand them. And to rightly understand a text we have to know the literary genre. We understand poetry very differently from the way that we understand history. Uh, context. And also idioms. So recently in San Diego we have had terrible, terrible weather. It's actually kind of funny because you've, you've been able to tell who was a San Diego native and who moved here. Because the San Diego natives, they all say, oh no, this is really good, you know, we need the rain. And people like myself who moved to San Diego because it's sunny are going, no, this is unacceptable. I did not move here for this. But when I was complaining about it, I said, it's been raining cats and dogs. What I meant, the literal, the, the literal meaning that I was trying to convey was the fact that it's been raining heavily. A literalistic reading would mean that household pets are just falling from the sky. <laughs> and we have idioms in the Bible that we need to understand. My favorite one to talk about is when Jesus says, if you're to be my disciple, you must hate mother and father. Now Jesus doesn't mean, if you want to be a Christian, you need to have a really bad relationship with your parents. That's not what he means. He is, he's using a Semitic idiom. He's saying that if you want to be my disciple, I have to be number one in your life, closer to you than the closest family member. So that's the literal sense. But now we come to really the heart of this talk, biblical typology. And it's based on the idea that the Bible contains an overarching narrative. And that God teaches his people, he teaches us, through his words, what he says, and the deeds what he does in sacred scripture, through word and deed. And typology is when an event happens in the Old Testament that prefigures something that's going to happen in the New. It points to future events, future realities, the good things that come with the New Covenant, Jesus, the Church, the sacraments, and as we saw last month, his mother, when Eve points to Mary, when the, new, when the Ark of the Covenant points to Mary, when even Bathsheba points to Mary. And this foreshadowing is done using what we call types. And this comes from the Greek word typos. It's where we get the word typical. If something is typical, it's according to its type. For example, I'm a typical Englishman. I have really a rather unhealthy attachment to tea. <laughs> I greatly love Her Majesty the Queen, and most American customs utterly baffle me. But it's also where we get the word typecast. So if someone is typecast, they are in multiple movies where they're repeatedly playing the same sort of role. So in England, Hugh Grant, in about 90% of his movies, he's playing exactly the same character. You know, it's like, oh, you know, bumbling and stupid and giving us a bad name. <laughs> The American equivalent might be Ryan Gosling. You know, he always plays that deep, troubled guy that you know, every, every woman wants. But Michael Sarah, 
he always plays, you know, the angsty indie teen. And Johnny Depp, you know, he always really stretches himself as an actor as playing somebody that's a little kooky and strange. And it's definitely not just another reproduction of Captain Jack Sparrow. And it's through these types that we have foreshadowing and fulfillment. We have echoes. It's like a, a sense of scriptural déjà vu. And so let's come back to the sacrifice of Isaac. This is a type. This is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. Isaac is a type of Christ. In scripture studies, we call Isaac the type and the fulfillment, Jesus, the anti-type. Seems a little counterintuitive, but that's what, that's what the fulfillment is called. And through these types, we can discern not just the literal meaning of the text, what the author intended to convey, but the other things that God was teaching us through it. And this is how the early church people such as Origen, the guy whose prayer we prayed at the beginning. This is how the early church, the early church fathers, this is how they read the Bible. So now let's go back through the story of Isaac and look for types. Look at the spiritual sense of the text. Can anyone remember how I described Isaac's relationship to his father? What is it? What kind of son did I say he was? Obedient. He was obedient, yes. But how, how did, when, when God was telling him that he's going to have to kill his son, how did God describe him? His only begotten son, son whom he loves. Does that sound familiar? Can you think of another son in the New Testament? Only begotten. You know, John, in John's Gospel, he picks up on this. This is why in John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John has Isaac's sacrifice at the back of his mind. And how is Isaac born? Do you remember? It was a miracle. His parents were extremely old. Well, how was Jesus born? It was another miracle, but it was a greater miracle. Isaac's, Isaac's mother and father, they still came together in the marital act in the normal way that that happens. The miracle was the fact that they were past childbearing years. But Jesus is even greater. He, had, he, is, he is virgin born. He has no earthly father. And this is a pattern that we see in typology, that the earlier version, the earlier type, is less than the fulfillment. It always leads to something greater. Now, where was the sacrifice? It was on Mount Moriah. Does anybody know what was later built on Mount Moriah? It was a very important building in Judaism that was still standing at the time of Jesus. The temple. So where Abraham was about to kill his son was the place where, years following, there would be all of the animal sacrifices. It's actually really interesting. If you read later rabbinic commentary, they wrestle with the question of, what was efficacious about those sacrifices in the temple? Because what does it really gain you? And some rabbis concluded that the thing that gave those, those sacrifices value was what Abraham did with Isaac, their, their total offering to God. And that these temple sacrifices are a representation of that one sacrifice. Now, Catholics should have your ears buzzing when you hear about a sacrifice being a representation. So it's pointing forward to the Eucharist. What was Isaac carrying on his back as he went up the mountain? Wood. Wood. What did Jesus carry when he went up his, his mountain? Also wood. It was in the shape of a cross this time. But there's also an important difference here. Isaac didn't die. Jesus does. And so when we look at these types, it's always important to see what's similar and what's different. Because Jesus does give everything. 
And when the church fathers read about the ram that was caught in the thicket, they saw the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And I said that Isaac was a willing sacrifice, that if he'd wanted to, he could have overpowered his father. Well, Jesus was also a willing sacrifice. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. He could have called upon legions of angels to defend him, but he chose not to. And I said at the end, when Abraham's completed the sacrifice, God tells him that he's going to bless him. There's going to be, uh, all the world is going to be blessed through him. A new people is going to be formed. Well, from Jesus' pierced side, we have the church. And Jesus himself is actually the fulfillment of that prophecy about Abraham. Because it's through Jesus that the whole world is blessed. And now, through the church. So hopefully we can see that we've now moved from the literal sense to the spiritual sense. If the literal sense is about the meaning of the words, the spiritual sense, the typological sense, is about the meaning of the deeds. What does this sacrifice of Isaac actually mean? And the wonderful thing about typology is it shows the unity in God's plan. It's not just a collection of random stories that just happen to be in one book. It's part of an overarching plan. And the thing that's really wonderful about it is it places Jesus right at the center of it. Jesus isn't just some character who appears in the final act to go and set everything right, but he's present throughout. One of the other early church fathers, a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon, he wrote this. Scripture is like a treasure hidden in a field, brought to light by the cross of Christ. When we bring the light of Christ and take it to these Old Testament scriptures, we can see things that we couldn't see before. You know, we see insights and we find treasure that even the most wise, holy and learned rabbis would have never have been able to find without the light of Christ. There are also a number of different types of... Uh, <coughs> spiritual sense, and they're mentioned in the Catechism, but I'm just going to skip over those. I don't want to add anything more that's not necessary. But not every passage will have a spiritual sense. Some of them might just have a literal sense. Now, I have a, another talk where it's entitled Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, and I reference biblical typology, because this can really enrich our reading of Scripture. And if we just concentrate on the literal sense and don't look at the spiritual we miss the overarching plan of God. But likewise, if we ignore the literal sense and just go with the spiritual, well then we can manipulate the text to mean whatever we want. It needs to be grounded in the literal sense. We don't want to end up reading in things into the text which aren't actually there. So that's biblical typology, but how is this even possible? How is it that we have these types and these foreshadowings and these fulfillments? And I've got a few images that I like to, to give you to help you understand how all of this hangs together. The first is God as author. God as the divine storyteller. In works of fiction, you can have foreshadowing. And you can have that for the very simple reason that the author is in charge of the story. If you're in charge of a story, you can set things up so that you foreshadow something early on that is fulfilled later. And as a reader, as you're reading through, you typically don't see the foreshadowing until when? until you actually come to the fulfillment, and then you go, ah, I remember that thing in chapter three. Well, it's the same with the Bible, and it's the same with history, because God is the principal author of both. He's the author of the Bible, and he's the author of history. And like any good author, he can weave motifs through the story from beginning to end. He can organize events such that earlier events can foreshadow what he knows is going to come later. 
And we see this not just in books, but also in movies. So you can imagine God as the divine director or the divine screenwriter. Who here, you know, who hasn't seen the Back to the Future trilogy? Okay, everyone else whose life means something. I was, I was thinking about a, a, a movie that would be a good example of foreshadowing. And the Back to the Future trilogy is perfect for this. Because you see in all three movies, the same things happen again and again and again. In every single movie, Marty wakes up after being knocked out somehow in a darkened room. And he thinks he's back home in 1985. And then a light comes on and he finds out, no, he's in 1955. He's in 1885. In every single movie, there's a chase through his town of Hill Valley. In every single movie, at some point, somebody ends up with a face of manure. <laughs> and throughout, there is the presence of this clock tower. Now, all of this was done on purpose, and it could be done because you had a screenwriter who was in charge of this, orchestrating this. Last example. This is probably my favourite, and you find this in the early church. A guy called Melito of Sardis, who loves this image. And that's God as the divine artist, as the divine sculptor. Now, when an artist gets commissioned to perform a work, they don't typically just jump straight in and start producing it. They produce some prototypes. They'll iterate over it for a little while. If they're a sculptor, they might make a, a small scale model, but out of something cheap like clay or wood. They might iterate over it a few times and it might get larger and closer to the final thing. They'll add more detail. And then finally, when they're ready, they'll then produce the final masterpiece full scale and usually out of some expensive material, marble or gold. Now, those earlier versions, they still have some value. I mean, if, if we're talking about coming across, you know, models or sketches by Picasso or Da Vinci, they are masterpieces in their own right and still worth an awful lot of money. But the point is, is they pale in comparison to the finished product. And this is what God does throughout salvation history, throughout the Bible. He makes these models, these prototypes, to prepare us for the final masterpiece. The difference is, is that when an artist does this, he's doing it for himself. So he gets an idea of what he wants to do, so he doesn't make costly mistakes. <coughs> but the difference is, is that when God does this, he does it for our benefit, not his. Any questions? What does typology mean again? Typology is the study of types. That's where we get the, so if something is a type, it's according to a certain pattern. So if you think about, say, a typewriter, you have, you know, a, a G key that you use to reproduce it again and again and again over a sheet of paper. So when we're talking about Mary, we say she's the new Eve. Eve is a pattern for who Mary is going to be. When we see the sacrifice of Isaac, it's a, he is a type. He is a preparation. He is a foreshadowing. He is a model of what Christ is going to be. So I'm just going to use the remaining time that we've got, it's about 15 minutes, just to look at some other examples from the Old Testament, some of which will be more familiar, some of which will be less so. But we're about to enter the season of Lent and then eventually Easter. And this is a very rich time in the church when you're going to hear so much scripture that is littered with types, littered with foreshadowing. So the first story I want to share is the cleansing of Naaman. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. It's in 2 Kings. Naaman is a general, a Syrian general. He's a Gentile. He's very successful. Life is good, apart from one thing. 
He has leprosy. Fortunately for Naaman, one of his Israelite servants tells him about Elisha, the prophet Elisha, and perhaps the prophet can cure him. So Naaman and all of his posse, they, they head over to Samaria and come to the prophet's house. And the prophet sends out a message. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Now, Naaman's kind of disappointed at this. You want me to go and wash in the Jordan? We have way better rivers back home. Why do I have to go and you know, wash in this muddy little river? And, and, and in scripture records what he was expecting, and it's kind of hilarious. He said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place. But all he gets is a message that says, Go to the river. Wash. And he's about to go home. But then one of his servants points out to him, if he had asked you to do something difficult, you know, if he had given you one of the tasks of Hercules, you would have done it. He's asking something very simple of you. Basically, what do you have to lose? And scripture says, Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, Elisha. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So he's washed, he's clean, and he comes back to Elisha and wants to give him all kinds of treasure, and Elisha refuses. And so Naaman says, well, can I just take some, some of the earth back, so that when I go back to my country, I can build an altar to the God who healed me. So that's the literal sense of that story. What's the typology? What are the types? What's the spiritual sense of that story? Well, this entire story is basically an allegory of our redemption. Naaman was plagued by leprosy. We're plagued by sin. Naaman was a Gentile. He wasn't part of the covenant community of Israel. And neither are we initially. Naaman was told to go and wash in the river. We're invited to the sacrament of baptism. Naaman was expecting something difficult to do. Uh, some kind of challenge. Some kind of way to earn his healing. But he found that what he received was a gift. And the same is true for baptism. It's not something that we earn. It's the grace of God. And it's through that that we enter into covenant with him. That's the symbolism of the number seven. It's the number of the covenant. Naaman was healed. And when we're baptized, our sins are washed away. And the, the story is vivid and it describes it as baby flesh. I live with a three-month-old baby and her flesh is just delightful. <laughs> She's not mine. <laughs> Actually, that sounds really weird. Let's just. Let's, I live with a married couple. They have a baby. <sighs> yeah, I need, to, I need to think that one through next time. Okay. <laughs> so Naaman thought that this was something he was going to pay for, but he found it was grace. And it's the same with us. We can't earn baptism, but hopefully our response is the same as Naaman, one of wanting to worship God. And this story really shows us one of the real purposes of typology. It gives us visible images of immaterial realities. I have never seen, I don't know what it looks like when someone's soul is cleansed of sin. But I can imagine what it's like when somebody with a skin disease washes and is healed. I've got two more examples. The Good Samaritan. Not all typology is actually found in the Old Testament. 
So if you recall the story, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? They have a bit of a conversation and they conclude, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the lawyer, he asks a tricksy question. But who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan as a way of answering that question. <laughs> so how does the story go? He tells the story of a man who leaves Jerusalem and is going down to Jericho. Along the way, he gets waylaid by robbers. They steal everything he has and they leave him half dead on the road. A priest walks by, doesn't help him. A Levite walks by, doesn't help him. But then a Samaritan, someone who was a natural enemy of the Jews, shows mercy. Pours wine and oil on his wounds, places him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pays for him, looks after him, gives a down payment to the innkeeper, and then says that he's going to leave. Uh, but one day he's going to come back and he'll settle the accounts. The early church fathers, when they read this parable, they saw another level of meaning. It's answering the question, who is my neighbor? But they saw this, again, as a story of our redemption. You have a man, Adam, humanity, leaving Jerusalem, the city of God, and going down to Jericho, which has connotations of sin. It's literally the lowest place on earth. So he's leaving the presence of God, and along the way, he gets attacked, beaten up, and loses everything, the robbers being Satan. The priest walks by, the Levite walks by. These represent the Old Covenant, the, the law of Moses. And they're unable to help him, they're unable to save him. But then the Samaritan comes past, representing Jesus. Now, man, when he sins, naturally makes himself an enemy of God. But still Jesus comes and shows mercy. He treats the wounds with wine and oil, which the fathers saw as signs of the sacraments, because we have oil and wine in the sacraments. He then puts him on his donkey. Some fathers describe this as Jesus taking our own burdens. And he takes him to an inn, which they saw as a symbol of the church. He then looks after him. He then gives a down payment to the innkeeper, the apostles and the bishops, to look after the fallen humanity. And then he leaves as Jesus left. But he promises he's going to come back again and he's going to settle all of the accounts. One last story. We're going to be entering the time of Lent and then Easter. So we're going to hear so much about the Passover and the Exodus. And since you guys are experts in typology now, I'm just going to tell the story and point out some of the spiritual significance of some of the things that happen. The children of Israel they're trapped in Egypt, in slavery. We're trapped in sin. God sends them a saviour in the person of Moses. God sent a saviour in the person of Jesus. After a little while, Moses tells them to prepare a Passover meal. That there is a lamb, an unblemished lamb, who's going to be killed. His blood's going to be painted on the doorposts, and then the lamb will be consumed. The angel of death will then pass over any house where it sees the blood. We're saved by Jesus' sacrifice, by his blood. And we too consume the lamb, the lamb of God, in the Eucharist. The children of Israel then leave Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. The waters part, they go through. But they're pursued by the Egyptians. This is a sign of baptism, passing through the water to escape sin. 
the Red Sea comes back and falls on the Egyptians, washing away sinful humanity. Exactly the same thing that happens in baptism. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and delivers them the law. We heard a few weeks ago in the readings of Mass, Jesus goes up a mountain in the Beatitudes and delivers a new law. God feeds his people with manna, the bread from heaven. Jesus comes, who is the bread of heaven himself, and who still gives us himself to us as the bread of heaven in the Eucharist. But yet they grumbled. They complained. They said it wasn't fair. And in this life, we do the same thing again and again. They spent 40 years in the desert. We spend our time on this world journeying towards heaven. The children of Israel eventually cross through the Jordan and enter the promised land led by Joshua. At the end of our life, we leave this world and we enter the promised land of heaven where we meet the new Joshua, Jesus. This is how the early church read scripture. And the Catholic Church has always made use of typology. If you go to cathedrals, particularly the ones in Europe, you'll see on, on one side stained glass windows of events of the Old Testament, like the sacrifice of Isaac. And then on the other side, you'll see stained glass of events of the New Testament. So opposite the sacrifice of Isaac, you'll have the sacrifice of Jesus. The Church brings us typology in the readings of Mass. We're going to do Bible study later. In the first reading, there's almost always either a prophecy or a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the gospel. And we have it in spades this week. Even in the prayers of the liturgy, this is the first Eucharistic prayer. The priest prays, Look with favor on these offerings and accept them as once you accepted the gifts of your servant Abel, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the bread and wine offered by your priest Melchizedek. All of these are types. The gifts of the servant Abel. Abel gave the first things of his flock to God in sacrifice. We've spoken about the sacrifice of Abraham. And then it mentions the sacrifice of bread and wine by the priest king Melchizedek. All of these things foreshadow the Eucharist. Actually, at my parish, we actually have the sacrifice of Isaac in an icon. This is how Catholics read scripture. And this is how we discover the treasure that's hidden in the Old Testament by using the light of Christ and it's best summed up in the quotation from St. Augustine, which I gave last month. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is unveiled in the New. Let's just pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that throughout salvation history, you have reached out for us. You have sought us. You have given us signs pointing to the coming of your Son. We thank you for your mercy, and we ask that in the coming weeks that our eyes will be open, our ears will be open, as we study your word, as we hear your word, to see your great fatherly plan throughout all of history. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.